physics, quantum mechanics, cosmology, backwards time travel, progress time, forward time travel. Welcome back to the art and science of sound healing with your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy cabin up in the mountains of Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful, rich, thick forest and lots of waterfalls. Today we have a very, very special guest, Dr. Tom Weiler. He is an astrophysicist, a particle physicist, my former physics professor, and I am happy to say a very dear friend. Welcome. Thanks, Thomas. (laughs) I'm Tom Weiler. I'm from Vanderbilt University, about uh, 90 miles away. Uh, I'm down here for uh, two days, which includes this interview, and... um, I'll let Thomas ask the questions and answer them as best I can. Fantastic. So this show is called The Art and Science of Sound Healing, and one of its main themes is essentially that art, the what we call art and what we think of as art and what's generally... Uh, yeah, what generally deemed to be art and what's generally deemed to be science, although they are interrelated, there's, there's aspects of our life, our experience, there's arts and techniques and approaches to various things that humans do to where art is appropriate in some cases and science is appropriate in other cases. For example, if you're landing a spacecraft on the moon, you don't want the engineers to artistically decide what uh, propulsion directions to use. Uh, you don't. And likewise, when you're at a dance party, you don't necessarily want to use an equation to decide what song to play. So we have a. All our guests on here are not necessarily. Uh, talking about sound healing per se, but generally talking about and introducing to us some of their knowledge about uh, departments of human activity that are helpful for us to understand, for us to grow the field of sound healing. And most particularly, you are a scientist. So could you please tell us a little bit about just your personal background, what, where you've worked, what kind of projects you've worked on, just a kind of a general bio to let people know who you are. Sure. I've been at Vanderbilt University for 34 years. I'm 68 years old. I probably will retire in two to three years. And um, before Vanderbilt, I was at Stanford, uh, UC San Diego, in Boston at Northeastern University, and in Liverpool. I did my PhD at Wisconsin. I did an undergraduate degree at Stanford. Um, What I work on presently is particle dark matter and neutrino astrophysics, and a little bit of LHC searches for dark matter. I'm a standard uh, theoretical physicist, mathematical physicist, I don't know much about art. I'm not qualified to talk on that. <laughs> so what I am qualified to talk on is mathematical physics. Fantastic. So you also, this, this might not be quite relevant to the discussion, but you've also worked at uh, the CERN Super Collider. Is that correct? I've worked at CERN in the theory division. I wasn't really associated with the Super Collider. And I've, I've worked at Fermilab... Um, on their board of directors, again, uh, I was a theory representative on the board. I haven't really done experiments on neutrino physics or proton-proton physics at uh, CERN, although I I spent a semester on leave um, probably about almost 10 years ago at CERN. This is exciting. So can you please 
tell us what is science? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I thought <laughs> I, I was prepared to answer what is physics. Let me take that one first. So physics is thought to be the study of space, time, matter, and energy. And uh, of the four concepts, time is the least well understood. Maybe we'll get back to that. Maybe we won't. What is science? So science is an attempt to um, present laws of physics to the real world we observe. Now, what's law mean of physics? So we don't use law in the conventional sense. There's nothing even proven about a law. It's just that the laws of physics happen over and over again without any contradiction. So we have thermodynamic laws, we have particle physics laws, we have the standard model of particle physics, we have condensed matter physics laws, and on and on. But science is, uh, uh, the hallmarks are, it's repeatable, meaning reproducible, so two experiments with um, done in different times in different rooms should get the same result if they look at the same observables. And that's what makes science special, in my opinion. I will say I, I was raised uh, in an organized religion. And when I um, graduated, basically, from high school, I decided that wasn't good enough. So I, I looked around and decided physics and its physical laws were the best one could do at trying to find an organizing principle to nature. And so for me, that was... Uh, a replacement, if you like, for organized religion. Anyway, it was a, a path to take, and I took it. I, I, I'm interested to see what you think about this. People sometimes ask me, what is physics? And I usually answer something along these lines, that physics is the field of magic that is generally reliable. So whatever you might think of as magic that you can rely on it generally occurring regularly by some sort of principles that you can define and, and write down and keep and pass along to someone else. What do you, what do you think about that sort of peculiar I think that's definition? A, I think that's a pretty good definition. Uh, the magic has to do with interpretations. We make magical interpretations, especially in quantum mechanics and in the astrophysics of black holes. Um, whether our interpretations have anything to do with reality, we're not sure of, but, but they do give us reproducible, there's that word again, laws or facts. And um, if any one of these laws or facts is not reproducible, that is an experiment sees a deviation, then we throw it out and we make a new law or we, we replace it. Um, that's why physics is called the queen of sciences because it does rely on data and it relies on reproducibility of that data which uh, some fields don't have. For, for example, I'm told that in biology there's so much to do. There's such a width, a spread of thought that experiments rarely reproduce Results. I mean, why spend your life reproducing a result if you can spend part of your life finding new results? Um, physics is not that way. Physics is sort of slow by comparison and trotting and uh, reproducible. We require reproducibility. In fact, we have a criterion for whether something is called interesting, whether it's called a discovery, whether it's called, whether it's called evidence for, uh, and it depends on the reproducibility or the statistical inferences that are drawn. Uh, one part in 900, in 99.999% is considered to be the standard, the gold standard for discovery. And one part in 99.9% .9 is considered to be the gold standard for evidence for, and one part in say 95% is considered to be interesting. So <laughs> what, why is this so stringent? Well, it's because the, the human phenomenon, um, we tend to see what we want to see rather than what's there. And these high statistical inferences are supposed to account and remove that, that human inferential aspect. Um, 
So anyway, uh, physics. So as I said, it's a, the treatment of matter, energy, time, and space. Uh, as Thomas said, it's, it's sort of magical in its outlook. Uh, both are true. We don't know where physics comes from. It's patched up by observation. Data is more important than theory, in my opinion. Some theorists would balk at that. Some famous theorists have balked at that. Um, but also, uh, I think that we make a mental picture of what's happening. We reproduce that mental picture over and over again, and we tend to, to define that mental picture as being true, whatever truth means, whereas it, it may uh, be just a picture. So physics is a, is a big picture, magical aspect, certainly, space-time, energy, and, and uh, matter. Um, and it's uh, reproducible as a picture. We can use the picture to make predictions that turn out to be true. Otherwise, we throw out the theory, and you haven't heard about that. How do um, opinions play into the development of physics? Opinions design experiments. So experiments are designed by people, and people have opinions. Um, the data taking is uh, supposed to be opinionless. We have conditions called blinding experiments or blind data. So we, we don't know what the answer is until the experiment's over and then the data is unblinded on a particular preset day. Uh, all, all this is an effort to remove the public domain from experimental data. And, of course, that's, that's a picture. The picture is that the data is independent of people, that uh, the sun really do will rise tomorrow to, despite any evidence of uh, that people may have to the contrary, and the, the sun will set tomorrow evening despite any evidence people will have to the contrary. So we try to use inference and statistics to clean up our data and make them independent of people. But uh, the fact that the inferential statistics are so severe tells you that that people do have an influence on outcomes. So I live in a world where a lot of people are very, uh, their, their, their rigorous science education is pretty slim. And elementary school and high school, our science classes are generally, and pretty much by necessity, don't go very deep into it. You know, they teach us generally the solar system model of the atom. They even teach us that our solar system is sort of flat, not that it's, you know, also flying through space. And, you know, everything's simplified in order to be able to talk to someone about it that has doesn't have a lot of training thus far. And then even when you get to, to college, most people in general don't, major in physics or chemistry or <clears throat> any of the so-called hard sciences. So most, most people in general don't really know much about physics other than what is sort of left over from their high school days, generally taught by, you know, the coach, not by a physicist. And then what they see videos about on YouTube or documentaries on Netflix or what they read about in Time Magazine or somebody posts on the internet. So people get exposed to most of their science knowledge through fairly unreliable sources and uh, that's that causes a lot of problems particularly in the world of sound healing because people will you know think that they know some science because they just heard it or saw it on a documentary and they'll feel well educated because there was a very charismatic speaker telling them about it and they'll feel a lot of passion about the topic um one thing that's really common is people will say something to this effect they'll say quantum physics says and then they'll fill in the blank and it'll be some sort of magical thing that justifies their previous metaphysical view. They'll say quantum physics proves basically my religious outlook. And in my experience, having you're much, uh, much more of a physicist than I, but I spent a lot of time studying physics. I went to school for it for eight years in college and graduate school. I was fortunate to have you as a 
teacher. But in, in my experience, quantum physics doesn't say something exactly. And if it does say something, it doesn't say something in, in English. It says it in equations and principles of, and so can you say something about the difference and the relationships between the actual uh, equations of quantum physics versus the potential interpretations of it and how those there's there's a variance there the same equations can have say different things through different people's mouths once it's translated into English so Feynman a famous physicist one of the most famous physicists of the 20th century said that anybody that thinks they understand quantum mechanics doesn't understand quantum mechanics and um So quantum mechanics is very strange. It's sort of misnamed. Uh, what's happening is uh, real numbers are replaced by complex numbers. Probabilities are replaced. Or certitude, determinism is replaced by probabilities. And there are various interpretations of what's ha happening. An interpretation is what one should be leery of, but the predictions have always supported these interpretations that I'm going to mention. So one is, and I was talking to Thomas earlier about this, so he was, he was one of my very good students, um, Bohmian mechanics. Another is the Everett, Everett interpretation. Another is Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation. It goes on and on. But all of these have to do with uh, a, a problem of quantum mechanics, which bothered Einstein. He wanted a deterministic theory, not a probabilistic theory. Um, all of them had to do with the interpretation of what happens when we describe particle motion and a measurement. In the measurement, we, we say it collapses the wave function. That is, it, the mathematics kind of changes abruptly, discontinuously. And that discontinuous change is associated with non-conservation of um, a probability or unitarity. So if we make a measurement, we know exactly what state the particle is in because we measured it. Uh, until that time, quantum mechanics gave us options. And so all of a sudden, we go from options to determinism, and then the, the particle evolves non-deterministically from that state onward. But um, the, there is that problem of certitude and uncertitude, which sometimes is, is used, uh, mis used and misused by people when they talk about quantum mechanics. Let me say, too, that... Um, Right now is a very interesting time in physics because we've had the discovery of gravitational waves, which uh, the first four, four events have been measured. The first three are thought to be black hole, black hole coalitions happening maybe on the other side of the, of, of the universe, actually. And we say a, a Z, a red redshift value on the order of one or greater. Uh, the third of the fourth event was thought to be neutron star neutron star merger, because the templates that have been observed, the observations match theory of particular mass masses, whose mass range tells us whether we have a black hole or neutron star. The first three events were very massive and they were surprisingly heavy. I'll tell you about one event. It was on the order of forty solar masses in a black hole colliding with 40 other solar masses in a black hole. 40 plus 40 equals 80. And yet, well, it was 40 plus 30 is what it was, equals 70. And yet the final black hole, according to the template matching, had 65 solar masses. 40 plus 30 equals 70, not 65. So there's five solar masses of missing mass. Equals mc squared, it's thought that that mass came away as gravitational energy. Five solar masses of gravitational energy were emitted in that collision. It was a brief moment when that black hole emitted more energy than all the other stars in the universe, not in the galaxy, in the universe combined. Um, there is a discrepancy between black hole physics and quantum mechanics, and it, it looks like 
something in our knowledge of black holes, our picture of black holes, our mathematics of black holes, has to give and change, or something in quantum mechanics, our knowledge of quantum mechanics or the math of quantum mechanics, has to give and change. So finally we have um, a situation in physics where there is a discrepancy in the laws of physics, and uh, stay tuned. We, we don't know at the moment which will survive and which will have to change, but something is, is uh, being learned, and that's what's important about science. Science always progresses in the forward direction. Maybe we'll get to that. I've, I've been working also on time travel backwards. But uh, gen generally uh, speaking, science progresses in the forward direction. And um, I'm very proud of what we, what we know and the maps we've made, uh, the pictures of reality that we've made at present. I, before we take a, a quick break, because we just had a, a guest walk in, and then we'll come right back to it. I uh, just want to, while it's, this is in my mind, ask you, I, I teach every, occasionally I teach high school science classes. I come in as a special guest or something. And I always tell people that I have the, my, my two laws of science. It's Thomas's laws of science. And the, the first law is that science is always wrong. And then the second is that science is always useful. And it's sort of a playful way of introducing the fact that it's inherent in the scientific process that you assume that what you know now is an approximation to what you'll know later. Not that it's really, it's not actually wrong, but it's not complete. It's less complete than it will be. And so I, I playfully say you know, science is always wrong but it's always useful. And kind of maybe the difference between science and mathematics is potentially sometimes mathematics isn't useful. There's such abstract mathematics that exists that we can conceive that some of it might never apply to anything useful, whereas science is always useful in some sense. So that's just a kind of a funny way to get high schoolers to, to think about science and realize that it's not some carved in stone here's the law because when people say the law the general public thinks that means you know something that's inviolable something permanent something infinite whereas in in act in actual practice of science a law is something that is open to be changed and improved upon expanded upon what do you think about my silly laws of science I think that's fine, and I agree <laughs> with it. Let me take an example. I mentioned that time is the least understood of the aspects of, of physics. We understand matter better, energy better, space better, time. Newton said time was a universal um, clock, and so one could assign a time everywhere in the universe simultaneously. Einstein came along and said, no, time uh, and, and showed in his mathematical model, which is testable and which turned out to be correct, time is not a clock, a universal godlike clock. Time is something that's invented and true for each of us, but at a different rate. For example, let, let me take us out of this. Uh, a, a GPS satellite has its own time with regard to the time that we would measure on Earth. And yet we use GPS to coordinate our time. Well, the correction has to be made. There's GPS time and there's Earth surface time. The two are not the same. So the correction has to be made um, on an hourly or bi-hourly basis so that clocks run differently. Clocks run slower um, at, at high altitudes than at low altitudes. And therefore, uh, in a day's uh, cumulative effect, we would be off by a, um, a fraction of a second, which translates into many meters. The speed of light, which is the speed limit, according to Einstein and according to measurements, the speed of light is about a foot per billionth of a second. So you can see that if you're off by even three billionths of a second, it's going to change where you're located by um, a yard to a meter. We, in, in the decimal system, we would call that a meter. Um, 
But we use Newton all the time. So Newton has a range of validity, classical validity, we call it. And then uh, after that, we have to go to relativity. Well, first, there's special relativity. It has a range of validity, too. And its range has to do more with heaviness of objects or size of objects. But eventually, we go to general relativity and time in general relativity. so each of these is not wrong, they're approximation to the other. And does that mean that we've, we've finished physics, that we now understand all approximations? Well, we understand all of the preceding historical approximations, but we don't know where physics will lead us. We don't know. In fact, we believe that our present laws, our present rules, are approximations to something even deeper. And that's partly what I mean when I say that... Uh, we have maps of reality, but we don't know that they're correct and they're probably not correct. So um, I agree with Thomas that, um, that physics is a, a useful approximation to make, but it's probably not an end game by any means. It's probably not, to use that word again, true in that respect. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about that I think our listeners will be delighted to hear about from an actual real-life astrophysicist. One thing I'd like to ask about that I'm sure our listeners would be interested in is other dimensions. So, of course, in our regular daily life, we're familiar with the typical three spatial dimensions that we could kind of think of as length, width, height, X, Y, Z axes. And then Einstein is largely responsible for introducing time as a, as a sort of a fourth dimension. And relativity is primarily framed in a, as, as a sort of four-dimensional uh, way of looking at things. Dr. Weiler, can you tell us anything interesting about other dimensions? Sure, thank you. So string theory is consistent only in 10 dimensions, where consistent means it's a technical definition, has to do with what's called the anomaly. Anyway, there's a a triangle cancellation that's required so that the theory be predictable and renormalizable. And in string theory, it can be shown that that happens if we have 10 dimensions. So there's the usual three space dimensions plus time, and that leaves seven space dimensions plus time. And um, so that's sort of a working hypothesis that one might have up to seven new dimensions, which are not observed and therefore must be compactified, must be tiny. So they're um, assumed to be small. And then the question that raises its head is, why are these dimensions small? Or to put it another way, why are the three that we know and love large? Why have we evolved in three large dimensions, space dimensions? And there are answers uh, that can be postulated. So what one does in particle theory, not string theory, is to imagine extra dimensions. Uh, The minimal number would be a fourth extra space dimension. Uh, Next to minimal would be a fourth and fifth, two extra dimensions, on up to... 10, or or in some string theories, 11 uh, extra space uh, space dimensions, minus the three that we know and love, X, Y, and Z, leaving seven or eight extra dimensions. So um, I I guess Thomas wants to hear about the theory that myself and a postdoc concocted. We're not alone, but using extra dimensions as a probe of funny physics. Well, what's funny physics? Weird physics. So if the time dimension mixes with the space dimension, and we know this can't happen with our three dimensions because we would have observed time travel. If the time dimension can mix with one of the new extra dimensions, one or more extra dimensions, one can get uh, time travel, which means particles can go back in time, go forward in time, a causally, which means faster than the speed of light, whatever. So there's the theory, um, and it's consistent with Einstein's equations. 
it requires that three things happen. One is uh, the new geometry in the extra-dimensional space mixes time and space. Um, secondly, it requires a particle that can travel in the extra dimensions, and there are theories of string theory around which says that particles should be could be a Higgs singlet or a neutrino singlet or, or something funny, uh, but it could exist. And the third thing that has to happen um, is that we have to have detectors available to uh, measure the scale of the new physics. Well, the largest detector we have is the LHC, and it turns out, due to quantum mechanics, large size is correlated with inversely with large energy. So the energy of this new scale has to be on the order of the LHC energy, which is 10 TeV, 13 TeV, 8 TeV, depending on whether how you count. So myself, I put the odds of at each happening at a one in a hundred, and therefore one in a hundred cubed is about one in a million, one in ten to the sixth. Also, um, to detect a causality at that level, one has to look for events that would have something a causal in them, which means uh, a particle that can decay before it's produced, it, before it's produced in regular time units. So what we would see is uh, a particle with an asymmetric spray in momentum space of particles, which then is produced at a later time, not earlier, but at a later time, with the asymmetric spray being balanced by an asymmetric production in, in the inverse direction. So uh, the signature is very um, bright, but with the probability of being, and on my estimate, one in a million or worse, um, the Large Hadron Collider cuts away these events because they have more events than they have computer time to analyze them. So they have uh, a protocol where they only take events which uh, assure them of seeing new physics. And one in a million is, is no assurance of new physics. And so they cut away events where the decay happens before the production. So, so that's not a place to look. Um, nevertheless, uh, extra dimensions allow uh, acausal theories, time travel to the past, time travel to the future, consistent with Einstein's equations, and that's the way it is, Thomas. <laughs> so to kind of dumb it down for the rest of us, you developed a with your one of your students or a postdoc, a cohort, a uh, a theory demonstrating that if there are other dimensions that have some particular features, then that would allow for the potential to uh, time travel or send messages back in time. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And the other features, one may ask, well, why, why should extra dimensions have new features? But I think that's correlated, can be correlated with the question, why are extra dimensions tiny? We know they have to be different because we don't see them. And one of the differences can be this uh, uh, kind of geometry that mixes in time in a spatial way. So on an <clears throat> another topic, you have some expertise in the study of neutrinos. Is that correct? Yes, I do. So neutrinos have a couple qualities, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that one, they are extremely uh, ubiquitous. There's a whole lot of them, we believe, everywhere. You told me, I think if I think this is what you told me, that from the sun alone, we have approximately one trillion neutrinos per square centimeter passing through our body just simply from the sun is that uh, right yeah yeah so so it's just within a factor of five or ten of that so maybe a hundred billion to 200 billion neutrinos passing through every square centimeter of our body square centimeter for for those who don't know is roughly the size of a fingernail um, and those are the neutrinos made in the sun through the fusion process 
There are also an equal number of neutrinos passing through our body uh, predicted by the Big Bang. We call those uh, relic neutrinos because they've been around since they were created uh, in the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. So besides being ubiquitous or being everywhere and in, in unfathomably vast quantities, neutrinos also have the property that they do not interact very much with what we normally think of as stuff. When we look around us and see, you know, just the things that we call stuff, they most of the the materials and substances, chemicals, molecules, structures around us are essentially transparent to the neutrinos. Is that correct? That's correct too. The uh, neutrino interaction probability rises with energy. It goes to zero at zero energy. Um, the neutrino itself is massive, but nearly massless. It has a, a fraction of well, about a millionth of the electron uh, mass. And um, the neutrinos that are going through our body are, are harmless because they don't interact. They travel right through. So what one needs to do is find neutrinos at higher energies, and that's where astrophysics comes in. Uh, neutrinos are made at higher energies, and uh, we've detected them now through the, um, a very imaginative experiment of a cubic kilometer of ice looking for neutrinos at the South Pole. And it's found uh, on the order of 200 neutrinos to date. Very interesting. So I have a question that I'm going to push you out of the normal realm that I, I think you probably operate in because you work generally in what most people might refer to as hard science. And this is uh, fundamentally speculative, but also has a, a little bit of logic to it. So if, if these neutrinos are all around us and there's a whole lot of them, is there, is there any possibility that within the neutrinos there could be structures say you know, structures made out of neutrinos you know like a crystal of neutrino or uh, even so far as a, uh, a neutrino crystal or a, you know a being composed of neutrinos or does that not make any sense well uh, suppose neutrinos were massless then there'd be no structures to them at all they would travel at the speed of light Light is massless. They would travel at the speed of light, and they would dissipate any any structural thought we might have. Neutrinos have a mass, although it's very light, so they're almost like photons, and their abundance in the universe is almost as big as photons, which are the particles of light, the massless particles of light. So it's thought that neutrinos would form structures because they're so light. Um, however, Having a non-zero mass, they are gravitationally bound, as are photons inside a black hole, for example. But neutrinos can be gravitationally bound in objects like the Milky Way galaxy. Um, so we, we expect some binding of neutrinos, but we don't expect any structures of neutrinos. They're the most ubiquitous particle in the universe, except for light itself. And uh, they're comparable... So we haven't gotten into this yet. Maybe we will, but um, the neutrino content of the universe is a few percent. The light content of the universe is a few percent. The matter content of the universe, in terms of matter that we know and love, is, a, uh, is maybe a few percent. So you add all that up and you only come to 5% total, which means 95% of the universe has an energy that's not particles, and we don't know what it is, so it's called dark energy. And, um, and that's supposed to be 75% of the universe's energy budget. We know that from measurements. Uh, it, it affects us gravitationally, but not in terms of particle constituents. And we have dark matter particles, which make up on the order of 20% of the universe. And um, we know that because they also cluster they will form structure, uh, halo structures around galaxies. And 
we know they exist because of gravitational effects. So that's the uh, composite of the universe. A few percent neutrinos, a few percent light, 20% particle dark matter, 75% dark energy. So the proposal of the existence of dark matter and dark energy is based primarily upon observations of galactic structures and such. Is that correct? Or? Well, it's based entirely on gravity. So we have no evidence that particle dark matter interacts with the particles we know and love that we're made out of. And we have no evidence that dark energy interacts other than gravitationally. So, uh, yes, um, there, the confinement length of particle dark matter is uh, galactic size. But there are pieces of evidence having to do with structure growth, the rate at which structure grows to present itself today, given the finiteness going backwards in time to the Big Bang. Uh, the, the velocity curve of, of ionized hydrogen as you get out of the galaxy, um, so there's a potential well due to particle dark matter that's observed gravitationally, which uh, causes particle matter that we know and love that we're made out of to fall in. Um, so there are various ways we know about particle dark matter and dark energy, but all these ways have to do with their gravitational interaction, not their particle interaction. Beyond simply observing these, these phenomena that suggest that dark energy and dark matter exist, are there uh, any developments in the propositions on further description of what those terms refer to? Like what it kind of something that we could think about and well, particle dark matter, it's called particle matter because it does form structure. For example, galactic halos, and we know this gravitationally. Dark energy forms no structure, but uh, it, it's been called the anti-gravity. It causes uh, galaxies to move away from each other. It's also been called the cosmological constant, which is one model of dark energy due, due to Einstein. Um, Einstein wrote down a, a second-rank tensor theory of gravity called general relativity. Well, a sort of trivial example of a second-rank tensor is one without no indices at all, which is called the cosmological constant. It's just a constant, a, a number that has no indices at all. And dark energy is a number that has no energies at all. We don't know if dark energy is dynamical, meaning it has a time dependence. It's going to grow or shrink with time or whether it's uh, truly a constant, like an integration constant, just another constant of nature. We don't know. Hmm, that's uh, very mysterious. I know in the realm of thought and uh, the subcultures surrounding pe that people studying things like sound healing, there's a lot of people saying uh, really bold statements about dark energy and dark matter that seem to be really poorly founded in science, but mostly just people have the opportunity to project their own metaphysical values onto these concepts of dark energy and dark matter. So it's definitely nice to hear a little bit about it from someone who can talk about it with some expertise. Well, it, it's peculiar in that it constitutes 95%, uh, more than 90% anyway, uh, 90 to 95% of the energy in the universe. Uh, it makes us freakish. We're made out of a minority matter. So the, the movement over the centuries has been the Earth to revolve around the, the sun and not the opposite, and then the Milky Way to be one of many galaxies, and then uh, the Big Bang Theory. And now we have... Now we're not even made out of uh, common matter. We're made out of uh, freakish matter. So I can imagine um, alternative theories having fun with dark energy and dark matter. We really don't know what it is. I've spent part of my career looking for dark matter, looking for its interactions in some way other than gravitational, which means interactions with standard particles. Uh, but to, to date, I'd have to say none of, 
none of dark matter interacting with st standard particles has been observed. That is fascinating. I would like to uh, discuss a little bit black holes. I was very fortunate to take uh, general relativity, which uh, graduate level general relativity and also cosmology with you. And my, my thesis actually ended up being uh, about black holes. And black holes are certainly one of the most interesting topics in, in physics maybe most one of the most interesting topics in, in science. One of the things that I think the general public uh, isn't familiar with is that black holes aren't always um, collapsed stars. Most people are familiar with, they think a black hole is, you know, a star collapses and forms a black hole. But really, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a black hole is essentially a solution to Einstein's equations of general relativity, which describe gravity in the ter in terms of the geometry of space, time, and energy, and so therefore, black holes are essentially in a, a solution to the those equations, which can exist at any scale, the, really small or really big, and. What I find extra fascinating are not the cos cosmological black holes, or I'm not sure what you call them, collapsed star-based black holes, but black holes that that we would expect based upon quantum theory and quantum fluctuations uh, to spontaneously occur at really unfathomably small levels. That in the in the tiniest at the tiniest scale, the, the Planck scale, that there are fluctuations in the energy so drastic that black holes may indeed be tiny Planck-sized black holes. And to, to let the audience know what Planck size refers to, the Planck length is approximately 10 to the minus 33 centimeters which is far, far smaller than what we think of as subatomic particles. And that we expect that potentially due to quantum energy fluctuations, that little Planck sized black holes would be spontaneously appearing. Can you say anything about Planck sized black holes? And that's in commonly referred to as the quantum foam. Yeah. Um, I, what I can say is that such uh, tiny black holes should be virtual means, v virtual is a word that has a lot of meanings, but it means not, not real. Um, <laughs> tiny black holes would decay away according to Hawking's paradigm. So Hawking calculated a decay time based on the mass of the parent black hole. Anything smaller than 10 to the 15 grams should be gone by today. 10 to the 15 grams, which, which is still small compared to the, the... The sun is something like 10 to the 57 protons. Uh, but anything smaller than 10 to the 15 grams, including black holes, uh, including um, Planck mass black holes, should have decayed away by today. So really the search, the surprise is that black holes appear to be old and to be big, to be massive. And no one understands this at present. Um, I think I alluded earlier to gravity waves that were generated by matching templates of a, a, a theoretical calculation with experimental observation. And there the black holes were 40 and 30 solar masses. And that was not uh, expected, that black holes of that mass should exist with the numbers required in order to give the three events that are observed by the gravity wave detectors. So, uh, in a sense, they got lucky in that they saw the unexpected, and in a sense, they made a huge discovery because we now believe the universe is filled with 30 and 40 solar mass black holes. In addition, uh, the fourth event they saw is two merging neutron stars according to matching templates theory and experiment. But um, 
recently has been discovered that black holes as massive as maybe uh, a million to a billion solar masses exist from a very early time in the universe. And that's totally unexpected and un, um, un, non understood because uh, such black holes being made early, no, nobody knows how that can happen. If they were quantum fluctuations, one would expect, as you say, them to have been small, to be gone today. Uh, and, and yet there, there are um, visible solar masses, millions or billions of solar masses in black holes that have existed from time immemorial. It's a surprise. Something else that the listeners may not be familiar with is the concept of white holes. So if you take Einstein equations and you break them up into sectors, there's an allowed sector, which you can get rid of by fiat, by saying this doesn't exist, or you can allow it, um, which are white holes, which are just the opposite of black holes. So white holes would come into existence not by stars f falling into a hole, but, but by uh, previous, exi uh, previous existence. So I don't really uh, know about white holes. None have been observed. Uh, I've never worked on, in that area. Um, and so I, I don't really want to say anything I don't uh, to totally understand. And I remember from your cosmology course, I, I believe it's from that, um, the, a little bit of a discussion of wormholes. Can you say anything about wormholes? Well, wormholes uh, are black holes in extra dimensions. So it's not known how a black, how black holes in extra dimensions would jive, would embed each other. Um, so a wormhole, an example that's sometimes given is imagine a two-dimensional sheet that bends back on itself. You can have a wormhole between the sheets connecting the two sheets uh, allowing space travel, time travel, to happen almost instantaneously between the two sheets rather than going around the fold. Um, wor wormholes are sort of saved, or the, we call the connection, the bridge, the throat. So the throat is made improbable by quantum mechanics, although it's not made impossible by quantum mechanics. So. I really don't want to say anything more about that either, except <laughs> except that there are um, energy considerations um, that one can invoke as, as laws of physics. Now, remember, a law is, is not, not a law in the sense of the judicial system, but a law in the sense of commonality. Uh, there are laws one can invoke to allow or get rid of uh, wormholes. If, uh, if any of the listeners would like to learn more about wormholes and black holes and white holes, there is a very excellent book by a respected gravitational theorist named Kip Thorne. The book is called Black Holes and Time Warps. And Kip Thorne just won the Nobel Prize for, for his work with gravitational waves. He shared that with two other people. So he is a, if you want to learn about black holes and time warps, he's someone you can reasonably trust being a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And, and he uh, made sure that the physics of the movie Interstellar uh, was credible, was believable. So he made sure that whatever happened in the movie Interstellar obeyed the laws of Einstein wrote down for general relativity. And he kind of looks like a rock star. Yeah, yeah he does. <laughs> <laughs> um, one really one thing I I'd like to come back to quantum mechanics or as some people call it quantum physics um, there's some really interesting things there but one thing and, and we might have mentioned it earlier but there's a thing a lot of people say they say that in the popular culture they say quantum physics proves that or quantum physics says that are Thoughts create reality. And as best I can tell, that is derived from the fact that uh, the experimenter or the measurement affects the outcome of the measurement. Uh, 
and that people took that feature of quantum physics and translated it into the idea that your mind or your thoughts create reality. But in my studies of quantum mechanics, which are certainly slim compared to yours, it, it seems to me that there is nothing in quantum physics or that suggests that our thoughts, that directly suggests that our thoughts create reality or any such thing. I don't uh, think our thoughts create reality. I think there was a reality before human beings started having thoughts a million years ago. I think there was a, a reality before animals existed, before broccoli existed, uh, going all the way back to before rocks existed, I think there was a reality. At least physics uh, and I think there was a reality because the Big Bang uh, started. You, you might ask what's, what's the meaning of time before there was time, but the Big Bang started uh, about 14 billion years ago, and I think that reality has been true ever since. What I think is that our picture of that reality may be wrong. Uh, and quantum mechanics says that many things, maybe everything, was once related. One can have a, one big function of the universe, a mathematical expression, which incorporates everything, which in time developed as people. But um, our consciousness is, uh, is not, not really a physical measurable and uh, it's a, a, a real problem, but conscious, human consciousness uh, is a real problem that will be with us a long time and not understood. But I don't think it, it affects reality, affects reality, makes it happen. Do you, what part of quantum mechanics do you believe that people would have interpreted to mean or to, interpreted to suggest that our thoughts or that that our thoughts create reality. Well, um, David Bump says that theories are non-local, meaning everything is related to everything, that the detector, which can be a human being or it can be an experimental apparatus, is related to the observation. That makes sense. Uh, it, it can be. But, um, but then you have to ask, was that not the case before humans existed? I think I think there was there was there may have been one wave function at one time, which became classically distorted, whatever that means. I have theories about that, but um, I, I don't want I, probably this isn't the time to go into it. But um, there can be one wave function in the beginning. Hartle and Hawking and uh, Gambon say there was. But who knows? Who knows what, what happened in the beginning? We weren't there. One of the things I think is really important, particularly in the context of this show and its topic, the art and science of sound healing, and getting a clearer grasp on what is art and what is science and how to apply them reasonably and not to mix them inappropriately or apply them inappropriately, but apply them appropriately is that one, one thing I think is really beautiful about physics and was really admirable about your approach to thinking about things is you tend to not um, go too far into making, you avoid, and, and it's, it's fundamental to, to physics and to science, to avoid saying something that you don't actually know just because you feel like it ought to be true or just because you like it. Whereas it's exactly the opposite when you're doing art. You say what you, or you express what you like, and that's essentially the essence of art. You like something, art is aesthetic, and uh, science is, you don't say something unless you have some clear reason to say it, and I, I appreciate that, and I think that's really important for our listeners to recognize just in your, your <clears throat> approach to answering my questions and discussing these topics. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, 
I, I don't know what, what art means. Uh, I, I'm not an artist, but I am a physicist. So f physicists uh, are loath to say something is true if, it's, if there's some probability that it's not. That's right. Um, before we uh, come to a close, I'd like to ask about one more particular topic is in the beginning, on the first show, I pulled out some definitions from uh, uh, that big, beautiful, unabridged dictionary, those big red dictionaries they have in the libraries. And for science, you know, it has a few different definitions, but I pulled out the ones that seem most applicable. Science is a, a branch of knowledge or study dealing with a body of facts or truths systematically arranged and showing the operation of general laws. And then to art, you say you're not an artist, um, but maybe you are. But art, the quality, production, expression, or realm according to aesthetic principles of what is beautiful, appealing, or of more than ordinary significance. So I find it fascinating that if you look at these definitions, you can see that what is normally called science, what we typically think of as science, has some correlation with the, this definition of art. For example, the quality, production, expression, or realm according to what is of more than ordinary significance. So deeming something as of more than ordinary significance has certain relationship to, to science, but particularly what I want to touch on upon was because this actually comes up a lot in uh, scientific literature is the aesthetics that um, an artist will follow aesthetics in their practice of art. They'll simply be devoted, focused upon, and working primarily with aesthetics. Whereas a scientist will oftentimes use aesthetics as, a, or see the aesthetics in a, in a sense after the fact. So you, you might work on some experiments or some theories, and then you eventually come up with an equation and one of the, the things about the equation that's appreciated besides the fact that it produces uh, repetitive, reliable results is also that it happens to be aesthetically pleasing. There's a, you know, that there's a well-known book called the elegant universe. And there's definitely a lot of talk of elegance in equations and, and that you can tell a good equation sometimes by the fact that besides the besides that it works for the predictions but that it also is elegant and beautiful for example e equals mc squared is the energy equals the mass times the speed of light squared the the further you look into it the more beautiful it is and it's it's almost a beauty that's more beautiful than most artworks because it's not just the artwork itself it's energy and mass and the speed of light it's the whole universe combined into this beautiful elegant as if the universe itself is an artwork and scientists are uncovering it what are your thoughts about that uh, well i like the way you put it science is the story of the universe itself and scientists are uncovering it it's what we try to do. Uh, the difference I see between art and science is that um, art's one of a kind. Each, each production is one of a kind. Science is reproducible. So science has, uh, we say, translational invariance in space, translational invariance in time. It doesn't matter if I do the experiment today or a year from today. It doesn't matter if I do it here or next door. I'll get the same result. If I don't get the same result, it's not physics. I can't use it. I have to throw it out. So um, the mystery, the magic, I guess, is that science has turned out to be elegant. It didn't have to be. Essays have been written on why is why is uh, science so applicable in its simplest forms, and it's just the the way the universe uh, 
chose chose to make it at least chose to make it in our picture which is totally applicable and reproducible um, art art art's wonderful but uh, I, I don't consider myself an artist and uh, it's not reproducible by well you, you can make copies but they sell for much less than the original Picasso but art's not uh, meant to be reproducible it's meant to be one of a kind science is meant to be reducible not one of a kind that's interesting and very fascinating I really hope that the listeners absorb some of this I know he went over a lot of our heads and certainly including mine and I've had probably a little more physics training than a lot of our listeners um, really really appreciate your being here today Dr. Wiley you, oh you also had a you were on TEDx you had a TED talk yes. what was the title of that please so maybe people could find it Oh, well, the title of that was uh, Einstein, uh, Neutrinos, and Time Travel. That's a good title. Yeah. That was smart. <laughs> I'd want to well, watch it just from the title. I, I will say that I constructed the talk at a time when at, at CERN in Switzerland, it, it appeared that neutrinos were coming from their source in northern Italy faster than the speed of light. And... Nobody, including me, believed that that was the case because um, there's, there's such a limit on causality in our three big spatial dimensions. Uh, nobody believed that the result could be right, and it turned out not to be right. But I think the TED Talk is uh, an ex- exemplary uh, presentation of what can go wrong if a, a particle is faster than the speed of light, and what does Einstein say about that? So... Um, it's a nice talk. It, it, people may like to hear it. Well, thank you so very much for joining us on the art and science of sound healing. I hope I might be able to convince you to be on another episode. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's on. That's on tape. You guys write that down. Mm-hmm. You heard it out there. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, hopefully you could hear the cozy fire in the background here in this beautiful cabin up in the mountain forest in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by waterfalls. Until next time, I'm Thomas Orr Anderson on the art and science of sound healing. Physics, quantum mechanics, cosmology, backwards time travel, forward time travel.